Welcome to the third season of the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. So for the first two seasons, I interviewed well-known dads, guys like Ken Burns, Van Jones, and John Legend. Maybe you heard it. But for this season, I wanted to be a little bit more personal. I figured, why pretend like I have my shit together when I don't? Who does that help? The truth is, I'm struggling as a father, struggling to raise my own two sons, Augie and Achilles. And there's nothing like having kids to throw into relief your own unresolved issues. The good news is, thanks to this podcast, I have the chance to speak to experts and authors and just other dads who hopefully can help me answer some of my burning questions. And because I was lonely, I'll be joined by a few dad friends here and there to hang out in the studio with me, starting with this gentleman next to me, Krishna Andavolu. Welcome to the Fiery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Joshua. How are you? Why are you so tired? Um, well, Augie, my five-year-old, is sick, and mm-hmm. so he's up with pneumonia. Also, I've been having, I don't know if it's a panic attack, but like every night at 10 p.m. my heart starts racing and I can't go to sleep. So you're not sleeping, your kid's sick, and... Struggling with dismantling the patriarchy. And that, well, that's always on, on the top, uh, always, forefront of your mind. Of yeah. course. And yours too, I'm sure. Indeed. Yeah, so that's what's going on with you. What's going on with you? Uh, well... Also, who are you? Sure, yeah, my, I'm Krishna. Yeah. Uh, I am a journalist as well. Um, I... I'm a television journalist now, sort of accidentally. I made, I've made a television program called Weedikit for the past three or four years. Uh, I also do a show called Vice on HBO. So you're like journalism of the face. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like not that good at writing, basically. <laughs> it's just um, but all I have, three quarter shots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I have like mouth. I have a mouth <laughs> yeah. and a pair of eyes. So it works out well. Beautiful. Um, but yeah, I've been covering pot for a while. Uh, I've now sort of started covering immigration. So last week, I got back from uh, the Guatemala-Mexico border, where I was sort of with the caravan of Central American migrants. So I got back also pretty tired, but also, like, you know, kind of frazzled, I think yeah. would be the word. Can uh, I ask you a question about that? What does it mean to be, like, with the caravan? Because I'm listening to news reports, too, and they say, oh, yeah, this guy was with the caravan. So are you among them? Are you traveling beside yeah. them? Like. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Do you peel off and stay at a hotel? I mean, for, yes, I did. I mean, I, I imagine there are some journalists who may be truly embedded. Yeah. Um, but we were there only for the, you know, that, the first couple of days as they were uh, crossing into Mexico. So there, there are people who are, who are still covering it now. Um, and it was all sort of part of a longer story that we were telling about asylum mm-hmm. uh, as the crux of the immigration debate today. But yeah, I mean, you know, coming home last week... Oftentimes when I go on these trips and I do reporting trips, I, I feel very grateful to come home, to be like, look, my, I have like a house. And like we're not... Uh, and who's in that house? I have a wife. Her name's Emma. I have a four-year-old named Kalyan. And we have a dog named Leela. She's a little pit bull. I work as a journalist. She's a lawyer. We live in Brooklyn. We have like a conscious parenting. Yeah. But one that uh, is infuriating at times, is imbalanced at other times. Um, I'm away a lot. That's part of it. But... So you came back from the caravan, and even from being a casual listener of the news, I understand that there are children in that caravan 
Yeah. As a dad listening to the idea of having your kid walk for days, literally walk across a hemisphere, mm-hmm. a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a kid coming from a great, happy... Sure, it, they've, it, seen, they've like been through some bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're already there. leaving from a really bad place. As a dad going down there, did you just have your journalist hat on so much that you didn't internalize it that way? or how? Yeah, I think what I'm realizing from this trip is that I have... Uh, you know, I'm I'm feeling it. We've been working on this story of asylum for a while. And when I was doing the weed stuff, we were also meeting people who were, had sick kids or, you know, various traumatic events in their lives. And we, we saw them at hard points. And I would come home and be so grateful mm-hmm. to, be, to have a ha- happy, healthy family. And not that I came home and wasn't grateful to have a happy, healthy family. I think I was somewhere. But I was overwhelmed by the complicated nature of parenting. Yeah. And I think it was like I was so strung out might be the word just from the travel and, and the hardship of that, from the emotional work of just sort of talking to people and trying to do the job. Um, and so, like, yeah, I think I'm I'm at a point where I'm more uh, I'm more sensitive to the ways that what I do for a living affects my family life. I, I can't think of a more intense scene of human suffering than this caravan. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, what's interesting is that it's actually quite. Like, especially at the beginning, there was a sense of solidarity. There's a sense of sort of not hopefulness is maybe the the wrong word, but they were putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, going through obstacles. Every face tells a story and everyone we talked to told a story. So, like, ultimately, yes, it's a sea of despair moving northward to hopefully find something better. But then you come back and you're drained. Drained. and, And you know what? I have to I have to step up and I was gone for a while. So I want to be able to like. Yeah you know, take over for parts of the things that my wife was doing uh, on her own. And I think, like, there's... I, great, I, I derive immense joy from having my child. We, we talk about maybe having a second. We don't, we don't know. Uh, but it is beginning to become a lot more work. He mm-hmm. started uh, pre-K. So in New York City, there's, like, public school pre-K. Um, and, you know, we, our, our commute's different now. So I have to, we have to wake up an hour earlier. When do you get up? Well, school starts at 8, so yeah. we're up at like 6.37. He is having a hard time waking up. Um, so Which just also like, underscores like the inhumanity of starting kids with yeah. uh, well, school that early, so that he, young and that early. He's t- I mean, like, I would, the problem I'm having, the biggest problem I have is I'm stern. Yeah. In, in response to non-cooperation, and a ticking clock of like, we're gonna be late. Yeah. My sort of, uh, I, I, I just maybe- Your is default. Learn, my default, my learned behavior is just be like, call yawn. And like, I, you know, my voice changes. Like the other, yesterday, uh, he fell and skinned his knee. Um, and so when we gave him a bath or when my wife gave him a bath and, and we were doing bedtime, he was very upset because he kind of like remembered falling and getting pushed and, you know, he, he was really upset. And so I was talking to him very gently about the times I've played basketball and I've been pushed or, you know, hurt myself. And at one point he was like, Papa, what's wrong with your voice? <laughs> because I was talking like sweetly to him. And maybe like, I just don't do that that often. Yeah. Partly because I'm not there, but partly because like my default dad mode is like a little stern and a little like, come on, bud. But it's also true that, you know, I have school age kids too. They're in kindergarten and second grade. It's like you get up. And from the moment you're up, it's a, it's a countdown. Yeah. Like you need, we have so many things that you have to do. 
And yeah, you try to create little moments of lightness, I guess, for the kid. Sure. For you and the kid to just have a moment in the morning where you're not just banging through it. Mm-hmm. But it's, there's very little space for that. And to be able to do that with grace and a, a, a sense of um, non-disciplinarian taskmaster yeah. uh, mentality is immensely difficult. Well, and I think my wife does a great job doing it. I mean, she's, she certainly is, she can be a taskmaster, but she's far more patient to like right. talk it's not through a binary. the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe she's late as a result of it, but maybe who cares? It's pre-K. Like, he's gonna yeah, be but then you late. get the automated, you yeah. know, <laughs> exactly. your son. Well, parent-teacher cool. conferences are coming up in a week, so um, we'll see. See how we do. Um, yeah, I just took my kids. So for Fatherly, I interviewed Rafi, the uh, Cairo born. Wow. Yeah. He, That's like monsters of kid rock. He is a monster. He's a legend. He's a legend. Maybe a dinosaur. He's 70. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, frankly, I didn't think he was still alive. I know. <laughs> but he just has a new album out called um, Dog on the Floor. It's a banger. <laughs> um, Are they going to play that on Hot 97? Yeah, Charlemagne the God. <laughs> no. Um, no, I interviewed Rafi because, as you might know or might not know, he's very politically active hmm. on Twitter. He's very anti-Trump, very oh, like left-wing. Yeah, he's it's pretty great, his presence. Um, so I was curious about it. And also because he's always on tour and sells out. Every venue he goes to, like he's just sold out Town Hall in New York. and Hardest working man show goes. Kind of. And it's just him up there. So, so basically I interviewed him. I had a great time. We talked about how he met Pete Seeger. And, you know, he really is very, he's more like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie than mm-hmm. anyone else. So, than like Barney. Yeah. Right. So it makes sense for him to be political because he came from a folk background. Yeah. He was playing the theater that I used to go to as a little, as a young man in Abington, uh, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, where I'm from. Um, like I saw BB King there, and I saw Buddy Guy there, and I saw um, my first concert, which is weird for a first concert, but it was Lorena McKennett, which was like Celtic folk music. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's like harp stuff. But my <laughs> mom's like, "You're gonna love it." Uh, so I went, and I loved it. Um, so I wanted to bring my kids there. My kids are five and six, and uh, we, so we went down to Philadelphia, which was, or uh, Abington, my, and, you know, it's like as a 37-year-old taking your kids around your hometown, where I've never been back. Both my parents left, and, like, I haven't been back. It's like you're showing them your house, and they're like, okay, mm-hmm. it's great, Dad. It means like, nothing to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I took them to Roman Delight, which, like, when I was in junior high school, like, this was the best pizza in the world, and, of course, the pizza's kind of yeah. not great. Um, We're just like down the street from the colleagues right now, right? Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, they're Brooklyn kids. They eat their pizza. They call it the New York way where they like... Fold it? Fold it, yeah. I was like frantically trying to show them where I came from. And they were sweet about it. Like they weren't dicks, but they were just like, cool, dad. Like, uh-huh. that's a nice, that's a nice house. <laughs> anyway, so we went to see Rafi. Rafi is amazing because he just shows up. It's just him. He, you know, one of his hits is uh, Banana Phone, um, mm. which is about a phone as a banana, which is like... Fundamentally, a good yeah concept. That's a universal truth. Yeah, yeah. It's just him wearing a plaid shirt and kind of like you know wide cut corduroys on stage alone with a, a guitar and a bunch of bananas, and he slayed. Hmm. Like he's been doing it for so long that he's so comfortable. And it was a mix of kids. Um, my kids are a little old. My seven year old six, but he's seven in December, so he's almost seven. Um, 
he's reached this point where now he's embarrassed by us. Already. Yeah. Hmm. So, like, we're dancing because it's Rafi and whatever. And he does this thing with his mouth when he's, you can tell he's really embarrassed because he goes. <laughs> so subtle. Yeah. Cruel. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, it's, it's when he doesn't know, when he feels uneasy and when he's embarrassed, he just goes. <laughs> so he was doing that. And my my younger son, my five-year-old, was, like, kind of into it. He could kind of get down with Down by the Bay, you know mm-hmm. that song? Yeah. Which is a really good song. Other thing about Ralph. It's around. It's, it is around. It's been around. I mean, it's been around for a while. <laughs> the other thing about Rafi is he, I don't know how I feel about him singing um, in like Patois and in Pigeon English, yeah. but he does it a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess Pete Seeger did a little bit. A little bit, but that was also like 60 years ago. Sure. Like, I think this song is called like Me Donkey. Don't, don't say anymore, I think. Yeah, and it's like, man. And so you're, you're in this huge like auditorium <laughs> with like a bunch of white kids and their parents. Also, Ralphie has a... Where do you le- play the Spectrum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Randall Cunningham was there and Eric Lindros. And it's funny that you make that joke because that's the only era of, of sports I know sure. at all. Yeah, right um, across the street from Veterans Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> He has a, a legion of super fans who are adults hmm. and who follow him and know the words to every song. Whoa. Which is... Were they kids when they like first got into him and just kept getting it? Like, do they wear diapers? I don't think these people were ever kids. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's sort of like uh, parrot heads for Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. But for but on a much <laughs> lower level. Um, so he's saying in Petois, I felt not great about... He does have a beautiful voice, great finger-picking and guitar work. We'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsors. The whole trip was a little humbling Mm -hmm. in the sense of... Why was it humbling? In the sense that this is a story to me that matters and the details of my childhood matter, mm-hmm. the proper nouns of my childhood matter, that I lived on Deline Road and took Meeting House to Abington Library and stopped at Roman Delight and went to see B.B. King at the Keswick. Mm-hmm. All those things matter to me. They only matter to me. Not to them. They don't matter to anyone else. It was like, I read a lot of um, like oral histories of like normal, of everyday Americans. Your regular stud circle. I mean, I'm a huge Sud Circle fan. It felt like reading my own oral history, where it's like, oh, interesting, abstractly, Hmm. kind of, at least it's specific. Did you did you like what your like? I don't know what your relationship to your dad was like, but did the worst? It was bad. So did he talk? Did he ever take you to his hometown? Did you have to go through that yourself? Kokomo, Indiana. Um, Great name. Yeah, great name. Not the song. (laughs) Not. Later in life, I realized the Beach Boys did not write a song about Kokomo, Indiana. Did you Indiana. really think it was about? Yeah, for until I was like, <laughs> you know, Aruba, seven, Jamaica. I never. I, I guess it does. I didn't run. know why, because <laughs> it's not. It's not a great town. It's like it used to be an um, automotive town. It's like an hour north of Indianapolis. You know, the industry went away, and it's, it was just this dying town. And I was so like taken with the fact that the fucking Beach Boys would say Aruba. Jamaica, the fucking Kokomo. (laughs) And when I learned that it wasn't that Kokomo, I was heartbroken. Similarly to how I learned, and you're from Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah. Similarly to how I learned like a year ago 
that Pennsylvania is not part of the tri-state area. I found that out maybe when I was 35. Like I mentioned, oh yeah, I'm from the tri-state area. And they're like, no, no, you're not. It's like, it was a profound disappointment. Disappointment. I felt foolish. I felt like I had been living my life with a the a false sense of I mean I am a but, false sense of importance. But the like sense of place is interesting as far as it relates to your the relationship to your parents. Like my yeah. my folks are from India. They grew up there and they came here in the uh, mid seventies, and so we would go back to India all the time. Um, like once a year. Yeah, pretty much. You know that was like the vacation was like a month mm-hmm. in the summer in India, and so I their family history or my father's specifically. Uh, was very much intertwined with sort of my identity. And so we'd go to India, and it's not like he would take us to the, you know, dosa place or the chai place that he would always go to, but I had a sense of, like, this place is deeply connected to me. I'm grossed out by it. I have diarrhea, and I, you know, they they don't even have cable. Yeah. And so this is boring and uncomfortable. But, you know, there was something deep in that transference, you know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, ask the question because... But I, I don't... Yeah, I think for my family who are Jews, it was a little bit different. My grandfather and my grandmother met um, on the Manhattan Project in mm-hmm. New York because my grandfather was a physicist. So they moved around a lot. But they... My dad's childhood, I think, was marked by feeling like he was a misfit because he was Jewish in this town. Mm-hmm. And he has a lot, he still does, have a lot of like anger and feeling of anomy from that. So that's what I have from being like an Indian person here. growing up here. Yeah. Right. So what about your, so are you going to, do you take your son to Princeton? I have. Um, my folks I mean, is that important for you to show him your... Not quite Childhood. yet. Not quite yet. And, and now my parents moved to Freehold, which yeah. is like actually a much more interesting, in my mind, sort of historical place in New Jersey, because like Bruce Springsteen's, Bruce Springsteen's from there, like Asbury Park is nearby. Yeah. Uh, but he loved, like he literally, my, my kid gets New Jersey and India confused. Because mm-hmm. when we go to New Jersey, we're going to my parents' house. Right. And it's India there. And like we make Indian food and we speak Indian languages and like blah, blah, blah. Uh, so there's just our relationship... And yeah, he even like he my my wife is is white. She's her mom's Jewish. Her dad's like a Texas Baptist. Um, both of them are are not that religious, though culturally Jewish. Uh, and he, my son identifies as Indian, even though he's quite pale. Like he looks more like her as far as skin tone is concerned than than I than me. So like yeah, how does he? How does a four year old when you talk to him does? How does that manifest? It came out kind of naturally. He was like. remarking upon colors, either someone's skin color, otherwise I can't remember. And he, it just came out of him. He was like, mama, you're white. I'm, I'm brown and Papa's brown. And so I just, it's so interesting that how, how at such an early age, like a a racial cognizance was already sort of there. Yeah. Yeah. My wife is from Brazil Mm. um, and her family mostly still lives there. And it has been and is a continued sense of loss, I guess, for us, that they haven't spent a long time in Brazil. They don't speak Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And they abstractly know that they're Brazilian. Um, but there's no... And it, it can be remedied, sure. but it takes like a conscious effort. It takes like what your parents did, I think, a little bit to say, we're going to go every year. This is going to be our vacation. Yeah. Well, we, and Brazil is pretty cool. Brazil is cool. Also, yeah. flights are really expensive, oh, you know, so sure, it's yeah. like... Um, and also, 
there's my I want them also to explore, but I do want them to have that sense of that sense of place. Yeah. Anyway, Krishna, thank you for taking this uh, journey into self-doubt and fatherhood with me. Um, I look forward to continuing it. My pleasure. So I'm a journalist and I get a ton of emails and most of them I ignore. Uh, I got an email though from Highland Park Whiskey and being someone who enjoys whiskey, I opened it. And for some reason they were offering a chance to visit the Draken Harald Harfagra, which was a Viking sea ship that was built and sailed across the ocean and was docked in Manhattan for like two days. I don't know the whiskey connection, but go to highlandpark.com or whatever. You could figure it out. Anyway, I said yes. Part of the offer was that I could hang out with Captain Bjorn Achlander, who is literally, he's, he is this thing. He's a Viking sea captain. Now, as a dad of two boys who are obsessed with Vikings, they're obsessed with Vikings. The idea that I could hang out with a Viking sea captain was too good to pass up. Also, honestly, um, I am always looking for father figures. And the part of my job that I like most as a journalist is getting to talk to random people I admire. And I had a feeling that I would admire this guy. And sure enough, I admired this guy. He's 71 years old. He has two kids, no grandkids. He spent his whole life on the seas. And I went down to this beautiful ship, and it has a sort of like dragon on the front, and there's no inside cabin. There's just a tent where 24 people sleep on two bunk beds. And to see Captain Bjorn on his ship, this is even before he said anything, but to see him on the ship and to see the respect that the crew gave to him Outside of the military, I think, and outside of maybe family life and um, maybe martial arts or something, you, you really don't see that level of respect. And it was heartwarming. I mean, it was more than heartwarming. It was like, hey, here's a dynamic that maybe in 50 years you can have. Maybe if you play your cards right and act responsibly and give people a reason to respect you, this can be your dynamic. I asked him about how being a captain affected how he was as a father and how, how he was as a father affected by his being a sea captain. And he told me. But first, here's another brief word from our sponsors. My name is Björn Alander and I'm captain on a Viking ship. I have two sons, home in Sweden. So you are a dad? Yes, you can say that. I'm, <laughs> I am take care of all, all, all the crew. But you also have kids of your own? I have two sons. Are they on, on the ship? No, they are not on the ship. I destroyed them too early, <laughs> too much sailing. I was always worried about my sons before, and now they say, Daddy, don't do anything stupid now. <laughs> so it has changed. I'm 71 now. I have also been young and done, done stupid things, but I want them to, to call me 
if they if something happens i told them often if you should come home 10 o'clock in the evening and they didn't call me i gonna call all the other parents around the town <laughs> i gonna look everywhere and they they hated that i was worried but now they understand I did a long, long journey for, uh, on another ship. We were sailing for two years from Sweden to China and back. And With and your sons? No, not with my sons, but they come on board just before we left and, and said, Daddy, I want to sail with you. And it was the hardest thing to say. I, you can't do that because people have been volunteer work for years to do this trip and you can't just jump on board and say you're Captain Sun. The most scary thing is to lost anybody overboard. I don't know if I could stand that anymore. If, if I should have signed off after a situation. I'm always worried in heavy weather that somebody should go overboard. I know how difficult it is to find somebody in the water. On this ship, uh, you lost the sight of a small head in the water very, very quick. So far, we haven't lost anybody. Knock on. Yeah. Knock on <laughs> Yeah. If you open a can of sardines, you know how they are laying. They are quite comfortable uh, compared <laughs> to our crew. So, so you you got a good. You have to be good friends with uh, all the crew. In my last ship, I had a own cabin and uh, and the desk. For, for my computer and things like and that. And writing long, poetic yeah, letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here <laughs> I, I squeeze into a sleeping bag and and uh, in the tent. But I love it. And we all work, we live the same, all of us, and then make a good team. I'm the only one who has uh, own spot. And that's because they should find me if something happens. So they, they pull my toes like this. You're required on deck. It's breaking waves over the side and and 60 uh, knots of wind. One thing who is very important. Everybody is interested and want to be on board. People are not here of money or anything. They are here of interest, and that makes it very very easy to work together. I love it. That is our first episode of the third season of the Fatherly Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Joshua David Stein. That was Krishna Andavolu. If you have any questions about the podcast or being a dad in general, don't hesitate to reach out via phone 732-416-4571. That's 732-416-4571. Leave a message about your problem. Keep it short. 
I'll find the answer and answer your questions on the air. And if you like what you heard, subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast on iHeartRadio. This podcast was produced by Max Savage-Levinson and engineered by Diko Shatorma at Atlantic Sound Studio. See you next time for a chat about how to celebrate Thanksgiving without sugarcoating it with Tracy Wilson, the host of the incredible podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class, and David Whedon, a tribal member of the Machpee Wapanog Nation. <laughs> <laughs>